You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org. Well, good morning, everyone. I'm glad that you're here this morning. It is truly an honor to to stand up here and uh, serve in this way. I do appreciate it, Sean. If you have your Bibles, please turn to Psalm 88. I won't ask you to stand. I will read this psalm. It's a lengthy psalm. Psalm 88. O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. For my soul is full of troubles, and my life is drawn near to Sheol. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am a man who has no strength, like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all your ways. You have caused my companions to shun me, You have made me a horror to them. I am shut in so that I cannot escape. My eyes grow dim through sorrow. Every day I call upon you, O Lord. I spread out my hands to you. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up to praise you? Is your steadfast love declared in the grave or your faithfulness in Abaddon? Are your wonders known in the darkness or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? But I, O Lord, cry out to you. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. O Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Afflicted and close to death from my youth up, I suffer your terrors. I am helpless. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me together. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And may you bless this word this morning, Lord. May you use the stammering words of a broken man to communicate to a broken people the desperation of a psalm that is actually hopeful. Spirit, meet us where we are. In Jesus' name, amen. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. 
Those were penned by an English poet by the name of William Cooper. It's one of my favorite hymns. And he was an acclaimed poet. In fact, tomorrow will be the 290th year of his birthday. He was born in a small town outside of London in 1731. And though he made tremendous contributions both to poetry and hymnology, he led a very unremarkable life. In fact, William Cooper's life was characterized by one tragedy after another. At six years of age, he lost his mother. In his young adult years, he had a marriage that was broken off. And throughout the course of his life, made multiple attempts on his own life and was in and out of asylums. God, in his providence in the year of 1767, when William Cooper was 36 years of age, used a chaplain to reach out to William Cooper. And it was the verses that Sean just read from Romans that captured the attention of William Cooper, the grace of God in the redemption that is in Christ through the propitiation of his blood brought about the conversion of one William Cooper. He was a contemporary of the Wesley brothers, John and Charles, and as, as well as Char George Whitfield. But it was the warm Calvinism of George Whitfield that he actually embraced. And that was shaped by a close friendship that developed between William Cooper and John Newton. John Newton gave us the great hymn, Amazing Grace. And John Newton mentored William Cooper and, and, and loved William Cooper. About 1780, however, John Cooper went to another city and that's when William Cooper's life went into a tailspin. It was during the final 20 years of his life from 1780 to 1800 that William Cooper felt utterly lost and totally abandoned by God. And yet John Newton continued to reach out to him from a distance. But it's a tragic ending to a life of one who was brought to Christ, one who was a follower of Christ, one who contributed so much. One of the final poems that William Cooper wrote was called The Castaway. It was a picture of his own life. He wrote it in 1799, and it speaks of a sailor that is washed overboard. And his comrades are trying to save him, but the winds and the storm are too strong. And the castaway is left behind, treading in water, in darkness. It was a picture of William Cooper's own dark night of the soul. This dark night of the soul, which is a phrase that was popularized by a Spanish mystic and monk by the name of St. John of the Cross back in the 1500s. And 
later expanded on, actually, by the English Puritans, called, where they phrased it spiritual desertions. This is what St. John of the Cross wrote regarding this. He said that such persons who enter into this dark night of the soul have a vivid understanding of their own mis misery, and they think that they will never escape from it. Their faculties seem powerless and bound. There's no hope for breakthrough, no remedy for the future. They feel abandoned by God, and this becomes the worst part of the suffering since we are dealing with one Namely, God who is loving and loves intensely. Have you ever felt this kind of misery? This inner darkness, this dark night of the soul, perhaps maybe you're there this morning. Do you feel abandoned? Or maybe it's just the outward storms of life and tragedies and afflictions that have left you emotionally numb and asking God at times, what are you doing? It seems that the psalmist here in Psalm 88 experienced this double kind of darkness, this, this inner turmoil, as well as the outward storms of life. His name was Heman, the Ezraite. He was one of the sons of Korah that gave us many psalms. And within the Psalter, we have many types of psalms, many different genres. We have psalms of thanksgiving, psalms of praise, royal songs, psalms, wisdom psalms. But the vast, perhaps the vast majority, as many as one half of the psalms, are actually laments. And we, when we speak of a song or a psalm of lament, we speak of a psalmist who is in, enduring anguish and despair in the midst of suffering and or persecution. The sinner pleads for deliverance while at the same time declaring his hope in God. The lament usually culminates in some sort of resolution and hope. That is not the case, however, here in Psalm 88. There is no resolution. In fact, the final word in the psalm, in the Hebrew, is darkness. All my acquaintances are darkness. One translation says, darkness is my only friend. Martin Marty, the church historian, has written regarding this psalm. He says that this psalm is a scandal to anyone who isolates it from the biblical canon. A pain to anyone who must hear it apart from more lively words. Whoever devises from the scriptures a philosophy in which everything turns out right has to begin by tearing out this page from the canon. It is the saddest psalm in the Psalter. It is the darkest corner in the Psalter. And in the psalm, there is no happy ending. 
many will ask and many have asked, why is this psalm in the Bible? And it is my assertion this morning that it is God's grace and mercy that it is in the canon. It reminds you and me that we live in a fallen world where resolutions are not promised in this lifetime. But if you have hope in Christ, there is resolution and hope promised in the life to come when Jesus Christ will make all things right and all things new. So I have three brief points as I travel through this very dark psalm, and darkness is a theme. Number one, the psalmist pleads with God in verses one through five, and secondly, the psalmist questions God in verses six through 12, and finally in verses 13 through 18, the psalmist clings to God. Look at verse one there. O Lord, God of my salvation. Stop right there. That is the high point of the psalm. It begins with the Lord God. That's where it begins. It ends in darkness. It begins with God. But it shows that Heman has faith in this God. He uses the covenant name of God, Lord Yahweh, which demonstrates God's faithfulness to his covenant in his name. Heman had a saving faith in God. And he personalizes it. He says, the God of my salvation. And in times of affliction, in times of adversity, it is not enough just to believe that God is. It is not enough to believe in God. The demons believe in God, James 2. But Heman had a saving faith in God. I, I believe that Heman could say with David in Psalm 18, 2, The Lord is my rock and my fortress, and my deliverer, my God, my rock, in whom I take refuge, my shield, and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. It is personal. It is possessive. God is his salvation. And that's the only thing that will get you through the dark night of the soul. Heman, in fact was not only one who was trusting in God in, in 1 Kings chapter 5, actually 1 Kings chapter 4, he was considered one of the wise men, a writer of psalms. But the dark night of the soul does not discriminate. It does not discriminate if you are a godly person. Yet in verses 1 and 2, he cries out, because prayer is a gift. I cry out by day and night before you. Verse 2. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. He doesn't turn from God in his darkness. He turns 
to God. That is the purpose of prayer. We believe that God is able to deliver. One commentator says that this is not a dignified prayer, but a protracted wailing. Yet in the midst of his agony, Heman believes that God is able to deliver. Derek Kidner, who's written a great deal on the Psalms, says that the presence of these types of prayers in the Psalms is a witness to God's understanding. God knows how men speak when they are desperate. And Heman was desperate. Why is Psalm 88 in the Bible? To show us our desperation. To drive us to cry out to God as our deliverer in the midst of our distress. Hebrews 4.16 says, Let us come with confidence to the throne of grace that we may obtain grace and mercy in time of need. But what's even more powerful is what comes before that verse. In Hebrews 4.15, it says that Jesus Christ sympathizes with us. And one of the most powerful thoughts I've heard on that passage was from Dane Ortland in his book, Gentle and Lowly. He writes, It is in our weaknesses that Jesus sympathizes with us. That word sympathize here is a compound word formed from the prefix meaning with meaning the verb could be translated to suffer with. Jesus suffers with you. In our pain, Jesus is pained. In our suffering, he feels the suffering of his own, even though it isn't. Not that his invincible divinity is threatened, but in the sense that his heart is feelingly drawn into our distress. God knows how desperate people speak. Look at verses 3 through 5. For my soul is full of troubles, and my life draws near to Sheol. I'm, a, I'm counted among those who go down to the pit. I'm a man who has no strength. Like one who set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. What is Heman's distress? Clearly, he is dying. He has some sort of physical affliction. In fact, in verse 15, he says he's had this for a very long time, from a youth up. Some have suggested a form of leprosy which would explain his isolation. Perhaps he is quarantined. The word soul there is, sticks out to me. My soul is full of troubles. I believe that there's also clearly a degree of severe mental depression in his own soul, in his own life, which would also explain the isolation. But I do believe that it is ambiguous 
that it is unclear because of God's grace. I believe it is left without specificity because it allows you and me to put ourselves and our situation, our circumstances within the psalm. I believe that's God's grace so that whatever you're going through, you can identify with Heman at times. Whatever his suffering is, he feels like one on the verge of destruction. The Bible is an honest book. Christianity does not claim to solve all your problems or offer you your best life now. There are no false pretenses. In fact, Jesus said it may get harder. John 15, the servant is not greater than his master. John 16, Jesus says, In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good courage. I have overcome the world. Let's move to the second point. Seaman, or Heman has pleaded with God, and now he begins to question God. And there's a shift in the text. There's a shift in the personal pronouns. It moves from I to you in verse 6. So that his griefs are not things merely happening to him, but things that God is doing to him. Verse 6 through 8. You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all your waves. You have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. I am shut in so that I cannot escape. Heman affirms that God is sovereign in his suffering. And the shift in language reflects a psalm gaining in poetic power and intensity that borders on irreverence to the point where Heman actually interrogates God. His theology is sound. He understands that the world is under the curse because of sin and that God's just wrath has brought death, grief, and suffering. He acknowledges God's sovereignty, but that does not mean that there is an absence of pain. He feels as one who is drowning. He says, you overwhelm me with all of your waves. It takes me back to... William Cooper, in his poem, The Castaway, I didn't tell you how that ended, but the sailor that fell overboard was treading in darkness in the waters for a good hour, crying out in vain for help. And this is how Cooper ended the poem. He says, Then by toil subdued, he drank the stifling wave. And then he sank. And I believe that's how the psalmist Heman must have felt. These storms of affliction and despair and the dark night of soul are not, none of us are immune from it. 
If you are familiar with the ministry of the Prince of Preachers, one Charles Haddon Spurgeon, who served in England in the 1800s, he was an indomitable figure, but a man who too, like Heman, was acquainted with a great deal of tragedy. In Spurgeon's life, he battled physical disease, gout, painful disease. His wife became invalid at the young age of 29 after having a baby, and he had to take care of her while engaging in ministry. He was attacked by other ministers in the downgrade controversy. But more importantly to our discussion, Charles Haddon Spurgeon battled severe depression. There were times he noted in his own life that he would cry like a baby for no reason for whatever that he even knew. And yet, Spurgeon wrote, it would be a very sharp and trying experience to me to think that I have an affliction which God never sent me that the bitter cup was not filled by his own hand, that my trials were not measured by him nor sent to me by his arrangement of their weight and quantity. Spurgeon experienced the dark clouds of life, the, the frown of providence, but he knew that there was a smiling face behind that frown of providence. He affirmed the sovereignty of God, as did Heman. And yet it is the knowledge of God's control that makes it sometimes hard to bear. How could my loving Father do this to me? Why? Or why must my loved one go through the ravages of cancer? Or why won't you bring back that child who has turned their back on Christ? Or why... Must I live with this chronic pain? I would serve you better and more if you would take this pain away. I've heard that. What is your why? God in his grace allows us to ask why. God in his grace allows us to weep, to cry tears, and to cry out to him. There's a reason we know Heman's name. He might not have known his, the reason, but his life had a purpose. And this psalm has been prayed and sung for thousands of years. Look at verses 9 through 12. He says, My eye grows dim through sorrow. The tears. Every day I call upon you, O Lord. I spread out my hands to you. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up to praise you? Is your steadfast love declared in the grave and your faithfulness in Abaddon? Are your wonders known in the darkness or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? There's some good theology in that passage. He's negotiating with God. He is saying to God, if you will just spare my life, I will serve you. Who will talk about you? Who will tell the world about you if I'm in the grave? But he speaks of God's steadfast love. He speaks of God's faithfulness, his wonders, his righteousness. This is a, 
a mirror image of another figure in the Bible named Job. I'd like to reference that right now. Job, the language is so similar to Job, it has led some Old Testament commentators to suggest that this could have been written by Job. But if you know the story of Job, real briefly, Satan challenges God by pointing at Job and saying, you've blessed him with all these things, but that's why he serves you. Everything's going good. It is, it is health, wealth, and prosperity all over the place for Job. You take that from him and he'll curse you. And so this, the long story short, Job lost his family. He lost his possessions. He lost his health. And his own wife just told him to curse God and die. And Job cries out to God like Heman. In Job 19, verse 8, I want to read a few passages from Job. He says, He has walled up my way so that I cannot pass. He has set darkness upon my paths. He has kindled his wrath against me and counts me as his adversary. Does that language sound familiar? Job 19, 19. All my intimate friends abhor me and those whom I love have turned against me. Again, the language is similar. Job is on the precipice of, of spiritual disaster, and yet, in this same passage, he finds it within himself to, to cry out words that we've often read and perhaps quoted. Verse 25 and 26, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. After my skin has thus been destroyed, Yet my flesh, I in my flesh I shall see God. Will the departed rise up to praise you? Job says, yes. The departed will rise up and praise God. We have the benefit of looking back behind the scenes of what was happening with Job and with Heman. They didn't have that benefit. And unlike Job, Heman clings Heman's despair would not let him see beyond the grave. And yet Heman clings to God, crying out in prayer, but is met with silence. Look at, verses, look at verse 13 as we move to our final point. The psalmist pleads with God. He questions God. He clings to God in the midst of the silence. Verse 13. But I, O oh Lord, cry to you. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. He, as I stated earlier, Heman has not turned from God. He continually, he kind of moves back and forth between absolute despair and crying out to God as one who alone can deliver him. He clings to God like the psalmist in Psalm 63, 8, in which he writes, My soul clings to God, thy right hand upholds me. But sometimes it's just a simple prayer. It's just to say, O oh Lord, 
How long? Marvin Tate, the commentator, has written regarding this. The psalmist is on the brink of death, but prayer is the lifeline which keeps him from the pit. Even the greatest of those in Sheol cannot rise to praise Yahweh, but the speaker keeps death away by conversation directed to God. This author, like Job, does not give up. He completes his prayer still in the dark and unrewarded. His verses 14 through 18, I'll read those real quick because it's a reiteration of what he's already said. It just grows in intensity. Look at verses 14 through 18. Oh Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Afflicted and close to death from my youth up, I suffer your terrors. I am helpless. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me altogether. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. And that's how it ends. All of his friends are gone. He is, he is fighting this all alone. And yet he is clinging to God because he's not alone. But if he has a friend, it is the depression that has become familiar. Nothing else presents itself. Darkness is the final word. There is no resolution. And that is the point. Resolution is not promised in this lifetime. Dave, Derek Kidner, who I re referenced earlier, wrote some helpful thoughts on this. He says that the happy ending of most psalms of this kind is seen, the happy ending of most psalms of this kind is seen to be a bonus, not a due. Its withholding is not a proof of either God's displeasure or his defeat. Secondly, the psalm adds its voice to the groaning in travail, which forbids us to accept the present order as final. It is a sharp reminder that we wait for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies, Romans chapter 8. And in his groanings, Heman is pleading with God. In his groanings, in his dark night, he is questioning God and he is clinging to God. Is darkness the final word ultimately? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. The answer is a resounding no. Because... You and I are here because Jesus took that darkness. In Matthew chapter 27, I want to read this. Verse 45, now from the sixth hour, there was darkness all over the land until the ninth hour. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus could have very easily prayed Psalm 88 when he was on the cross. In fact, he did. 
Jesus was forsaken of God on the cross. He groped in darkness and he did it for you and I. You and I deserve the darkness and the wrath. Jesus took total darkness for us by absorbing the wrath of God for all who put their trust in him. That day of darkness was not the last word because three days later Jesus rose triumphantly from the dead so that in your darkness Jesus will walk with you and not abandon you. Darkness is not the final word. Jesus is the final word and Jesus invites you in John 8:12 when he says, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. And all God's people said, Amen. You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org.